Hey everyone, it's been a while. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Hi, Jared. Hi, Fiona. Hello. 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 This is insane. It's been a while, hasn't it? It absolutely has. <laughs> Did I just hear the. Never mind. you know what here we are again welcome to trying to be kind a podcast that looks at ttrpg texts well and adjacent texts you know under an academic lens the book as we well know is the elusive shift as written by john peterson and published by mit press and as always we have our morning slash evening introductions but it'll be slightly different today because jared our wonderful Jer Bear is going to tell us who we are according to his perception of our Star Trek captaincies. I'm the only one qualified to answer this question. So here's the deal. Fiona, if I had to choose a Star Trek captain for each of us, I think Fiona is Benjamin Sisko because if anyone's going to punch Q, it's Fiona. And Mahar, I think Mahar is probably Janeway, although I don't want that to read as an indictment of Mahar. But Mahar does what needs to be done, even when it's a war crime. And then for Moon, Oh my God. And then for me, as much as I would like to say that I am a James T. Kirk, there's no way. There's no way in hell. So I have to be Picard, who's just too, so perfect and miserable. He makes himself miserable by being so perfect. And that's me, really, when it comes down to it. <laughs> the self-serving nature of this answer. A war crime? Really? A war crime? Well, you know, she's in an impossible situation. They're lost in space, you know? Sometimes you got to roll the hard six. I was hoping I, I was hoping you're going to say something like, there's nothing military about Mahar. If Mahar were to be truly a captain, he would be along. He'd be captain adjacent. He'd be Deanna Troy. But well, there no. is. Okay. So there is a no. moment with Janeway. And this is really, I think, why I chose Janeway for you, Mahar. There's a moment with Janeway. And without getting too deep in lore, but there's an episode of Voyager where one of the characters um, is her species has this like they have like a really short window where they can have a baby. And she's entered that window, but she's also like, there's no one, you know, she, there's no way this is going to happen for her. So she's having just a really bad time emotionally. And there's a moment where she's like in the infirmary. And Janeway comes in and gives the stern captain look. And if you're me watching the show, then you think, oh, this is where Janeway is going to give the stiff upper lip speech, right? She's going to captain and she's going to say, it's fine. Everything sucks and you're just going to have to get over it. And what she does instead is she walks over to the girl and just gives her a hug. 
And that is, it really struck me as a person who's watched a lot of Star Wars, but had not seen Voyager. It really struck me how uncommon that kind of thing was in that situation. So that level of empathy, even, even from Janeway, who has to be a captain, I think is remarkable. And I think it speaks to uh, your particular uh, ability to maintain empathy, even in difficult and trying times. We're all trying to be kind, but I think you're the best at it. That's really sad. I think what's, what you're basically saying is that Mahar is basically a competent person who was told that he'd be in charge of other competent people, only instead, no, he's not. And that's why his crew are just like a ragtag bunch of... <laughs> That would be which Babylon 5 captain we are, and I'm only in the second season, so there's only two of them, and it's which one of you is a romantic idealist, and which one of you is intentionally bland, but secretly a romantic idealist. Okay, you know what, Let's. Uh, my, my dismay at being said that I'd be so ambitious as to, or so determined to get things done. I understand I'm a Capricorn, but I didn't realize it translated into Janeway. <laughs> so here we go. This is Have not a Star Trek jokes podcast. About nerd things. This is not a Star Trek podcast. So technically, we have had a full suite of nerd references before talking about our real subject matter, okay. the elusive so, shift. Okay, and also so, Dune. We'll just get Dune in there okay, real quick. Let's... If it's the shift Dune, must flow. Look, <laughs> if this was Dune, we all know I'm the Lady Jessica. We're done. Okay, so. Oh, yeah. Uh, in that case, Jared is Duke Paul Atreides, and I am absolutely St. <laughs> Alia of the Knife, and it works out perfectly. <sighs> and now that we've made, like, enough inside jokes that <laughs> we have alienated all of our audience. Hello, the elusive uh, shift. Uh, I shift promise, right in. I shift promise, into position. Let's let's look now into more serious things. Let's look into something more meaty. Um, let's talk about our bread and butter. <laughs> so, oh my god, we're going to talk about a book about D&D. Okay. So, <laughs> just when I thought I was diluting the tension of geekiness. Okay, so yeah, um, friendos, this is our last episode regarding the elusive shift. Um... And this isn't because it's a bad book. In fact, if anything, it's because it's a good book that we didn't need to do so much covering of it, largely because it is very straight and to the point and quite illustrative of its main thesis, which basically is here's this history of gaming. And it's rather hard to pinpoint all of these transitions of how this indie game known as D&D created a community and also shifted into becoming the juggernaut that we know as Dungeons and Dragons today, right? I mean, that's basically its main its main thing, right? Or am I? Yeah, just- I think it's yeah. it's sort of it's sort of showing how the early folks talking about the early discourse of uh, surrounding D anD D existed from go, you know, and sort of what did that look like at the time? And I think it's for me at least, it's been pretty unexpected. Not only at how sophisticated it is, but also like how how sophisticated the discourse is, um, but also like how not extraordinarily different it is from the discourse both 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and now. Well, I think that's what's kind of its timeless quality, you know, but also 
you know, maybe a bit with the last sort of third of it that I think is interesting. And, you know, look at me just doing a smooth transition, unlike mm. in real life. Um, I thought that was a great pun. <laughs> Don't care that no one else laughed. Um, you know, uh, the um, from like intermezzo transcending design, which like I actually just like the open to, to the close, which kind of becomes a uh, question about, you know, system and model, um, not game system, but, you know, the system with which people understood role-playing games. And now I'm trying to find my page, so someone else should talk about something else. Okay, so let's go to this intermezzo, right? Where we're talking about basically how ultimately how D&D moves on from this I guess like rough design rough design so whatever going on and moving on from moving on from whatever into this whole notion of like a freeform style of play where you have people like Gygax who were basically saying you know what um He's Gygax himself acknowledging in 1975 that his own play of D&D differed from the printed guidelines, in quotes, and he granted blanket permission for everyone to diverge just as radically. Each campaign should be a variant, Gygax affirmed, and there is no official interpretation for me or from anyone else. So we're looking at, you know, we're looking at this whole notion of what exactly is this game that has become bigger than the creators? And people started arguing about it. And then as things went along, right, you know, as things went, went, went along, we even had this other development where you have Bill Seligman, another SES for D&D, essentially saying, the problem TSR has is that the term D&D is starting to refer to fantasy role-playing games in general and not those just bounded by the D&D official rules. So already we're looking at this like the situation where, oh, look, we are still feeling the echoes of this right now, which is number one. Are you playing the game <laughs> if you don't play rules as published, which even the very maker of D&D or even the very, very maker of D&D himself said, nee, you know, whatever. And then you also have the problem where because Maybe it's related because the games could keep on changing and being so open-ended and people basically shifting around how D&D was played that now RPGs in general were being referred to as D&D. And that is also something that we feel all up to this point where, mm. you know, like it's, it's the usual Twitter thing where you end up going, hey, if you know, like, there are other games you can play other than D&D. I get it. Indie RPGs is sick and tired of thinking that the only thing out there is D&D. But when you, when you do think about RPGs and the public consciousness, Dungeons & Dragons is arguably the only RPG game that I could think of that has actually had massive media penetration. Like, you're going to have D&D in Stranger Things, you're going to have D&D in E.T., right? You, you, it's you not have in D E.T., is it? Yeah. I, 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 I hate Steven Spielberg, so yeah, but, I've not seen that movie since I was a child. But E.T. has D&D scenes, right? Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. I think so. You have D&D. a long time. You have D&D in Freaks and Geeks. You have D&D in 
the Big Bang Theory. So it's like it's not like just this eighties nineties thing. It's like all yeah. it's all D and D. And so, like importantly, though, it couldn't have been anything else. You know what I mean? Like, there's not another game that that they could have put in there and gotten the same sort of cultural cachet out of it. Like maybe if it were a super nineties thing, they could have done Vampire. But I mean, that's Vampire the only other thing. Vampire had a TV show, was... though, right? Didn't Vampire have a TV show in Sweden? It had a TV show in the United States. The yeah. lead actor from it died, and that's why Buffy got made on Fox. Um, <laughs> because they had a rule about one supernatural show at a time. It actually took a couple seasons for Buffy to do better than it. So in an alternate universe, Vampire, the Masquerade is a soap opera that lasted most of as long as Buffy and Angel <laughs> using their lore. <laughs> And it's bad. <laughs> that show's bad. I I love it, but I of love course that. you do. <laughs> I unabashedly love soap operas. I think they're great. I think mm-hmm. people should do broader, more violent and intense humor. You know, like lean in. <laughs> Sitcoms are too predictable. Um, but I think that does get to the point of how the intermezzo even opens um, of. It is fitting that Traveler, perhaps the most adaptable of the designs of the 1970s, should exemplify the extremes of both open-ended and closed systems. Offsetting the complex rules in its core booklets, the game's first supplement, Mercenary, 1978, offered referees a few alternative ways of determining the outcome of a mission, including one called the Freeform System. Mercenary explains, No precise rules can or should be given here, as much as of the realism of the system derives from on-the-spot interaction between the referee and the players. True to its word, the section literally goes no further and allows this free-form method of mission resolution to proceed unencumbered by rules. This liberated the referee and player from any dependency on dice or system, leaving only the dialogue between them, the imaginative power of players to articulate intentions and the judgment of the referee to decide their consequences. Right, which I think has kind of this nice transition point to, I think the elusive shift is really interesting that talks about a play culture, right? Like this is the transition of chainmail D&D, a thing that a guy is kind of making on a very like small printing scale, right? And it's selling out at a few colleges and among war gamers. And D&D as a children's television show and a lot of the stuff that I associate with like, you know, kind of the regrettable era. That's why people think of it as kind of cringe when I'm young, right? Like the D&D branded wood iron, the D&D like Whatever it is, just slap some marketing on it, send it out, you know? Um, and how much for Peterson, right, that makes the stakes of system, in fact, be what is the interpretation of system among players and among people, which is why this conversation's interesting, which I think is why it's interesting wrapping into the modern, and I swear I won't do a long run on like this again for a while. <laughs> you know, like, that there's kind of this what was it like well it's I, it's it's kind of like dnd truly um it's like dnd truly uh, reflecting its roots like you have all of these variations of play for dnd you had all of these supplements coming out as well you had all of these magazines all these zines really the true 
you know, essence of what a zine was, of people having all of these various situations, alternative rules. So in a way, it was almost like D&D was reflecting its previous predecessors, right? It's like D&D was basically Kriegspieling it. Yeah. That's what it, um, that's what it feels like. That's... I think that's where some of the cultural power of it comes in, right? It's not just that it's in movies. It's that, like, there's even, you know, I think of, like, the sort of meta, like, nostalgia stuff that starts with, like, Wet Hot American Summer, right? Where it's, like, actually, only a level 20 dungeon master would have a randomizer made out of a rock, you know? And, like, solving a rocket trajectory doing it and saving the world. But, like, is the person that's, like... Would you like to play a cleric, milady? It seems that you've cast charm and entice person on me type stuff, right? Like, but where it's like, it's not really about playing D&D. He's just kind of a D&D guy and there's already punchlines. Mm. But I think that, like, that only could exist with like generations of it being such a dominant media idea that I think some people play D&D without ever reading a book. And I think that's fine. <laughs> well, I think it's it's interesting that or I think there's some kind of narrative to be drawn out of the fact that that Gygax quote that we looked at a minute ago and then the stuff about um, Mercenary, the, the Traveler book, like we're talking, that was 1975 for the Gygax quote. It was like 1978 when Mercenary came out, I think. And yeah. both of those, very importantly, are before uh, 1E came out, AD&D First Edition. And that I think I think one E is a really and I don't know how much the book really touches on this, <clears throat> but I think one E is a really a watershed moment on this particular front because it reads it's it's difficult to say what was going on in Gary Gygax's mind, but it reads like him trying to wrestle power back. You know what I mean? Like trying to basically to go back on this idea that every table is different um, and all of that. Like there's some of that, it, it, the, the, DM, uh, the DMG for 1E pays some lip service to that idea. But 1E is structured to be a tournament game, quite literally. And they held tournaments, you know? Um, and that's why it sort of is the way it is. And I think the impetus was, if not entirely, at least partially, to make it a better product to sell you know what i mean to give it some kind of productness that perhaps uh od and d or perhaps they felt od and d was lacking well i think that's the implicit problem of the promise of system right which kind of gets into the elusive shift is should this book answer everything and if this book doesn't provide an answer do you invent it yourself or buy a book that models the answer off of the thing you already own which is also kind of in a weird way the fantasy heartbreaker that ron edwards talks about mm -hmm. right i've got my bespoke 3.5 setting a few things are tweaked i should publish it because it is the same as but not the same as DD, and it does have my hand crafting in it not but yeah it's, it's interesting but, to yeah. see especially like with the last in the last few years with the rise of 5e it's interesting to see watsi kind of invert that language to sell mm -hmm. it now DD, it's not that DD is so particular and specific that you must buy it 
it's that D&D is so expansive and non-specific that you sh- you should buy it, <laughs> right? It's like that kind of inversion of marketing language that I find mm. really fascinating. Well, it's it's like, you know, like in a way because of how D&D <clears throat> sorry, pardon me. You know, I'm I'm more interested in like current praxis as we learn from history. Mm. It's that yeah. look D and D was such an open sourced kind of situation, right? It was it was so it was so cliche, like it was not not cliche, but it was so cliqueish that you basically had your own game based on your interpretation of whatever was published, right? Mm. So, and people were were storing the people were storing the rules. People the rules were like literally housed in clubs. This was not an easily accessed thing. So because because communities were going around whatever they had, they, I think, out of necessity, and I, the book doesn't really talk about this. I'm just trying to figure out what a, what, a, what a community would do with something that wasn't producing as much or as fast. They would produce on their own. So it, it was that scarcity, I would argue, which created design sensibilities for, for these communities. And that is why when you have like, because you're gonna run out of material eventually, you are going to run out of material. You're going to run out of the things that you can do because the rules don't cover it or the modules don't, you know, you, you've bought every single module and this is already later down the line. And this is why I think because if you have that thing, you have, I'm not saying D&D is the, respo- is, is the reason why game design exists. That is far from what I'm saying. But it does catalyze that habit out of necessity. So... And that gets carried on. Um, like, that's why you have SRD, right? You have SRD documents. That's why you had, like, that glut of products during 3.53, where everyone, like, everyone, it seemed like everyone just was making D&D content because they could sell it as a third party. And then you had, and ultimately, one could say that uh, that's why Pathfinder came to be as well. And then if you look at 5e with the DMs Guild, you're seeing that happening all over again. I think the big difference right now is that you have an institution in the form of Hasbro able to channel marketing and temporal power, aka money, <laughs> into mm. establishing D&D as a brand versus what was more organic before, which is that D&D happened to be, for whatever reason, the, the standardization of gaming. That's basically what it is. Like when you had photocopying and then you had Xerox becoming the verb, for fo- and that's mentioned in the book. Um, it became it became brand equals product. But yeah, it's an all roads lead thing. to Rome kind of situation, yeah, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. and I think going back to everything that we're saying, like, and that I think is historically speaking where we're at right now. I think we're in a situation where, and I think, um, and I think Hasbro slash Watsi has basically given up, and that's why they're just like <laughs> trying to saddle this horse. And point it in the in the direction rather than completely tame it, which is just to say, hey, if you want to make money off our IP, here's an opportunity which is high, which I think is still contentious, but at least it's it's the game as you know it, and and um, yeah, it's that's I think that's where we're at right now. We're in a place where people are trying to harness design sensibilities that come from the fact that the game tends to be sorry that people's applications and interpretations of the game tend to be larger than the product and so as a result 
um, it's a good thing in a way. I think it's a good thing that human imagination is always larger than whatever is given them. And that is why we have design sensibilities coming off of this game. And that's why the game is forced to evolve, not only just because there's an economic reason to do so, but because your user base literally is designing their way out of your edition. Okay, that's my pontification for the day. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, you know, on a joke referencing a very old novel that no one's read or short story, uh, you know, it's an elf trap, right? Like the whole idea is that it's a thing that catches your imagination, right? Like Hasbro doesn't need to tell people that they have to play D&D. To some extent, if you're aware of the idea of role-playing, to some extent, it's because you're aware of D&D. It's like the graph that Chris Bissett, I think, posted. Mm. The day that we're recording this for me, to be as accurate as possible, um, you know, that's like, how much is Pazio versus Wotzi, even though, like, that's an unfair comparison because I think Magic the Gathering has like a much higher cost in some ways. But also, yeah, Pazio is much smaller. Like the, the the money is really huge. It's like me being like I was in a bar band, I'm basically working the same industry as like rock gods. Um, please see me perform for 15 drunk people. But like <laughs> That was kind of a 90s alt RPGs thing, right? Like, there was the degree to which, like, Vampire the Masquerade was, like, the bad boy RPG that ran away from the censorship system that was adopted in the 80s and also made an adults-only imprint. And also sold, like, a card game to Toys R Us that had, like, a card called Eviscerate with very graphic artwork they spent a bunch of money on. I keep on forgetting Vitesse was a game. Yes. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. It's like I keep it's on in its fifth that. edition also. It's just got to its fifth edition a lot faster. Right. I mean But it's been around for like twenty five years minimum. Yeah I, yeah, I know. I just keep on forgetting that there was a anyway, we're on the book. It's like and I, I well, Theo and I were talking about this, like about our favorite part of the book so far. And I do agree that the intermezzo leading into design into like philosophy of what a game is is where I think a lot of us, at least the both of us, because we're the majority, two out of three, sorry, Jared, <laughs> is, is the whole idea of what does it actually mean to play a game? And what is this philosophy that comes out of gaming? Like, because as much as I hate to say this, D&D is probably 90% of the time people's first RPG. So that really colors your perceptions of the game, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not as. I don't even hate that. Most people's first movie is awful. I think my first movie was probably Disney. Uh, it's like... not. It's not that. It's not that I. It's not that I am. Um... Well, there's a difference, you see, because with Disney, with Disney, if Disney's your first movie, um, at least one can argue that structurally speaking stories have beginning middles ends like you know like whether we like it or not aristotle had his way the poetics is still going on story should have beginning middles ends and so when it comes to an art form when you think of a narrative yeah beginning middle end you're, you're, we have very few movies which are like not like that 
Um, but when it comes to RPGs, I think RPGs don't necessarily follow D&D conventions all the time. And I think they vary completely in terms of play style and rule set. And so I think that's where some of the divisions come in, where people um, calcify into gaming very early on. So that's that's my suspicion. There is no this is pure theory, friends. Do not come at me <laughs> with these like with these like actual like no. This is look if you have statistical information about gaming like this and want to refute our claims, I think we'd host you. Like Actually, we would literally yes. have you on our show. Yes. To talk I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. I would love to hear that. If someone could give me like empirical structuralist proof, fine. <laughs> Someone had the time and budget to fulfill and prove my thesis. Like, I'll be fine with that. But in the meantime... Well, I think it's also... I think on, on that subject, I think it's important that, like... Um, it's probably, in some ways, better that there's not... I, I mean, I wish it weren't all D&D, right? But I, from a, like, product perspective. But it's probably, in some ways, better that not everyone is coming in to exactly the same kind of game as a new player, right? Like that kind of plurality is at least in my mind, a, a benefit. It's a good thing. Um, I wish again, that it weren't a plurality centered on one brand and one product, but I think um, it becomes that calcification that you're talking about. And especially, especially the, like um, the enmity that, that bruise across these invisible lines that we sort of have. Um, I think that that probably has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have categories necessarily for talking about these things. Like if it were the kind of thing where I came into uh, gaming in this certain way, you know, my, my first RPG was like this, that's colored my things in these ways. And I have language for pointing at those things. And the fact that I have that language means that I know that there are other things also, right? There's more in this world than is dreamt of in my philosophy. Um, that all of that, I think, would be a much healthier situation. Um, but since it's such, since RPGs are such a young medium in like a grand, you know, history of human civilization kind of way, um, we don't have that. And so we end up just like, sort of howling wordlessly at each other with you know when i I'm, i have no i have no mouth and i must scream kind of deal that's what i'm i think hopefully trying to get at with this is right because i think of there's always people that fall through the net right like on i don't when i'm dismissive about disney films or things like that right like i actually do know a lot about animation and i really respect animators and some of the early ones are like literally things i believe should be public domain because they are literally an example of artwork that people can't make anymore mm. we have lost the skill to do it it's irreplaceable at this point people don't hand and composite animate the same way because computers have actually expedited the process but it also has created a cheapness by using keyframes that like you know is different and has created different labor conditions and the distinctiveness of an individual artist is gone but like you know also realistically like seven people probably shouldn't be the only people working on something on the scale of a film or whatever the number is in like the heyday right you know, mm. it's not, it's not huge, right? Look, I think people should see things that are, right, like, I think it's good that D&D &D is in some way 
at this at the point that it's at in this narrative right of the elusive shift and by narrative i mean just what is narratively describing in history right not like narrative as in i disbelieve it is right like the idea of D&D becomes generic fantasy role play and then there's kind of what is generic fantasy role play and now you know in some ways our message in a bottle of looking back at the elusive shift and also looking at it across the bow of another book is right like 5e is kind of generic role playing using a certain system in the way that like i think since third edition they've included firearms rules in the back but they're kind of embarrassed about them <laughs> like the thing of like here's sci-fi guns kind of scaled to be like a long sword like axe or heavy weapon well, you know like etc yeah well this is what i think the elusive shift doesn't really do which is it doesn't talk about dnd's need need quote unquote and i'm it doesn't look at dnd's uh need to be fed by a narrative and then and i think that's not necessarily within the purview of the book but i think what did happen just looking at how the philosophy of the game was such was to permute to adapt to absorb and then create your own rule set create your own setting set is this also does not intersect like the sorry this rather intersects with the need to like to plumb story because D&D is ostensibly a fantasy RPG but eventually you're going to run out of you're going to run out of of narratives right so eventually you're going to start looking at other cultures and say I like that narrative let's bring it in of course you have your old, your other media influences as well you have your other discourses like pouring through you and, and then by later on, unsurprisingly, the other podcasts have pointed this out. That's when you start going into Asia. That's when you start going into like South America. I mean, like, what was that really horribly ill-fated FR, Forgotten Realms, South, South American, South American rather, South American uh, setting? Oh, I don't know about this. Zakara, right? Like, so I think that's, what's, that's what happens here. Like, because D&D also is a victim of its own success it became the fantasy game right yeah it became like, the fantasy game and then all these companies came up to be the fantasy game and so as a result when we see this later on when people start unwondering what a role-playing game is now how are we supposed to play it people start trying to diversify on content rather than on rule set and that creates its own kind of forms well or on playing right like and i think that's why people emphasize systems sometimes right is that like a thing about i do actually play in a lot of games i often have personal goals that have nothing to do with whether or not the party wins or loses but does my player character do something right like it can be do they see a new location it can be can they gain a bunch of sword tricks you know because i can't control for anything else i might as well have a personal goal that i can always pursue and you know it also helps with just doing some minor role-playing stuff i think of that sort of thing as you know a lot of ways of how i keep games fun right if I just wanted to figure out the numbers that will make me defeat every obstacle, I wouldn't be role-playing. 
I'd be doing maths, which I'm actually pretty good at. Um, but I mean, I mean, have you seen? Did you see that part, that discourse part in Coordinate Philosophy, which I found rather humorous? Where in the 70s, role-playing games actually were selling more than board games in many cases. So, for example, yeah. to the point that people were trying to resist what makes a role-playing game. Uh, to quote, the opposite difficulty arose for products that did not advertise themselves as role-playing games, but found themselves shoehorned into that category. Once Upon a Time in the West, a title first published in 1978 with a substitute a subtitle, rather, Rules for Gunfight War Games, laid no claim to membership in the company of role-playing games. But after TSR rebranded its Wild West rule set Boot Hill as a role-playing game in the summer of 1979, the designers of Once Upon a Time felt market pressure to do the same. Uh, and it creates... A, it continues to say, in an introduction to the game supplement, The Return of, Ian Beck recreates a heated conversation with his publisher where he asks, Who says Once Upon a Time in the West are role-playing games? And the publisher gently informs him, Everyone does, because that's what they are. The designer is forced to concede this point, but only warily because he loathes fantasy and the role-playing associated strongly with it. The publisher's incentive in this matter is clear. Role-playing games sold better than war games in 1979. And I'm just kind of like, D&D was like a rubber, was a rubber sheet and someone put a weight on it. And suddenly everyone got dragged into, get dragged into this definition. And it's... I think that's historically important. Like whether we like it or not, <laughs> our way well, of gaming got this distortion from D and D. History is written by the victors. I learned how to play D and D um, by learning, you know, a mix of O D and D and Second Edition. You know, like it's not like I would have learned on another game really at the time I did. There weren't even really ones made for people as young as I was, right? Like, and I probably would have hated them. Like, honestly, I, yeah. I was a precocious and horrible child. I, I liked, you know, fantasy adventuring. I went to shoot crossbows at things and like meet fucking goblins, you know? I was easily entertained. I was five. I just find this really funny. Um, we might have lost the script a little bit here, friends, but you know, it's no. like. Well, it's I like, have a thing. Yeah. Um, so there's a thing, and this is one of those things I don't know how much I actually have to say about this beyond pointing it out, but it's. So later in the book, 226, page 226, in, in, at least in my copy of the book, um, there's a section called the, I, I'm, I'm going to say, Blakeow model, mm -hmm. which is named after a person. And it's basically the, the thesis here is that this person was trying to work out like what's going on here. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways that these games sort of manifest in play. What's up. And uh, he set out four what he called forms that inform the feel of a play experience of RPGs. And I think it's really important that it's framed it this way that he's looking at it in terms of feel um, instead of, I don't know, any number of other ways um, that you could, you could construe it. But the four, I thought it was interesting. Like I glommed onto it because the four forms that he describes are kind of simultaneously GNS and stance theory. 
Um, so the four forms are as follows. The first is role playing. Um, and these are, these are to be clear, I, I think they're presented as attitudes toward play. So here role playing as a form is quote one, wherein the PCs are by far the most important thing in the game. The second form is wargaming. The third is ego tripping, which is uh, their way of not saying min max, I believe. And then the fourth is storytelling. So you can see in in here that you've got like role playing as actor stance kind of. You've got storytelling as like narrativist, ego tripping, quote unquote, as gamist, right? They're, like there's it all both of those things almost map onto this. And I just am like kind of blown away by it. Well, I think it's interesting that also gamist always has negative associations, right? Like, right. If we say that ego tripping and gamist have kind of like this line to them and I'm not saying like, you know, that means that they're directly related, Mm. but although Ron Edwards says he doesn't have preferences, I do believe that Ron Edwards doesn't like, gamus design or the way he describes it always makes it seem like an inferior thing to the other forms of game design and you know i think people overall do not like it as a thing and i think increasingly it's because game designers don't like people breaking immersion yeah well it's actually it's interesting that you bring that up because i think there's a thing happening with these four where you've got both wargaming and ego tripping and they almost describe like they, they describe very adjacent things, but the wargaming one is obviously not pejorative. Like that's more on the simulationist end, which maybe maybe Forge people would use the the idea of simulationism as pejorative. But like broadly what? speaking, for this person, this Blake Hal person, it's definitely not. So like it's almost like min-maxing is gameism in a bad sense. And wargaming is simulationism, which is kind of also gameism because it does describe it as, uh, quote, the most important element here is the rules and mechanics of the game. Like that is how the man described it. So it's almost like that's the good kind of gameism. <laughs> if you get me. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. In fact, <clears throat> to the point that I feel like I f- wish I'd read this book before I read our first one. Yeah, right? You know, like I think this book really sets the context for why future movements movements future design trends movements uh, however you'd call it philosophies came because it really sets that setting well like this is how people were playing so and you could then pluck examples that substantiate descriptions better and illustrate descriptions better in the original um in our from our first season i'm sorry friends if it's a bit sounding we're on we're on many media so <laughs> listen to them and then you know like i think that's something that's really that's the usefulness of this book i think like it really situates where the ideas were being built and gives examples of here is how these ideas were made like we have x game that showed this much much better than i'm sorry i'm sorry i I should stop grousing about our first season it's been done well you know i think that in some ways this might be an interesting transitional point right like i think 
right for me the difficulty for this season of a podcast is i think the elusive shift is a victim of its own success and that i have critiques of things in it but they come down to how i would position an academic study differently rather than disagreeing with many of the core claims (laughs) which is also very different because it's a historical thing right like this is basically you know there's the framework of analysis around it, but like, right, what I think has been a through line for all of us is none of us think that this is presented wrong, right? I mean, none of Yuna, us are like. The podcast was called Trying to Be Kind. We barely had to try. Truly. <laughs> you get also, down to it. We had no spicy takes be, for this one. Well, I think, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm a born contrarian. I. <laughs> I can't help but do it right. Like this is a victim of its own success in that it very much has an era where it does history. And by doing history in the way that it does is both good history and lacks the thing that I want in history on a certain level, right? Like I'm a crazy theory person. Look, I'm a Walter Benjamin fan. I think that, look, we should look at the angel of history as the series of catastrophes that have piled up creating the present as a constant state of emergency and that the only way we could ever resolve that is to resolve all of the crisis and contradictions of the past right (laughs) which means that you have to enumerate them and in some ways i think what is missing for me from this project is the idea that it could have happened otherwise right there's a certain inevitability mm. because of how it's doing history and Mm -hmm. right this is again it's well, a victim of its own success well, for me. Well, Fiona, just to like, because I'm also contrarian and I'm hearing this argument, but wouldn't you then say that you're going to ask uh, a historian then to speculate rather than to point out at uh, eventuality? Like, isn't that also dangerous? Because what could have been are not actually ours. Well, I would say simultaneously, right? looking at what the chances are that created an outcome rather than treating them as teleological, which is me getting extremely deep inside, you know, (laughs) huffing theory, a thing that you should only huff behind 7-Elevens and lesser um, diners. Okay, Um, so what's your back alley academic power set (laughs) following your description? My back alley academic um, powers is that I'm pretty okay at academia, but I tend to not like doing it, um, is right. Like I think there are decisions that D and D made that were wrong, right? They didn't make good decisions. They made decisions that were effective and those effective decisions had repercussions and treating it without some eye for that is both how you treat it in this way that gives us this clean history that I think is scholarly and well-written and worth commenting on, which is why I'm being critical, right? Well, I think that also bears some resemblance to a specific, like, category of criticism that we had of the previous book, which is that it didn't do enough of talking about, like, bringing these things into the present. Um, Not even the present, right? Like, it doesn't, on some level, right, like, Traveler could have become the next D&D, right it's been around almost as long yeah it didn't there are reasons for that that range from people didn't get it it has like an intimidating amount of math right 
I, okay, I think, I think I think I know what you're talking about now, Fiona. It's more like it needs to talk about the implications of opportunities missed. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very fair point. I and, see. Yeah. Yeah, like in the same way that the economic deal that Gary Gygax made with Empire the Petal Throne actively undermined Mar Barker, right? Like it wasn't. It was made to make it so that it just wasn't very profitable for anyone to sell copies of Empire. And in some ways, it's an anti-competitive practice that Gygax engaged in. And I think we could talk about it as like he didn't make good business decisions. He didn't want to sell a lot of copies of it, et cetera. Right. It's very easy to say like, oh, he just didn't want someone that he clearly played in games with for a long time to succeed, which I think would be wrong. But, well, I right, think like, I hope that that's that a do? subject. I hope that that's a subject that Peterson's new book, the new new book probably gets into or at least I, that kind yeah. of subject right because it's the bad decisions made around marketing the bad decisions made around advertising right like the way that i think of like uh james malazuski i hope i pronounced that right um and his blogs bit about the transition between editions where one was like you know recommended for older readers versus one for all ages and preferring the older version despite them basically having you know near identical rules right mm. because of as a young person it felt like you had a secret decoder ring in some way and you know i think of those things as the sort of chances right like why did D end up in a bunch of libraries and yard sales you know but like, admittedly, much of that is beyond the scope of this. Much of that is the thing. I view this as scholarly groundwork, but I always feel it's remiss to not point out that like, that doesn't mean this is perfect and that I'm saying like, there are no flaws in an entire argument because, right, I'm not a syncophant. Um, <laughs> and, but yeah, I do think it's a really narrow book and that might be slightly to its detriment here. Like I, I'm, I'm a big fan of big broad sweeping false statements like that's what i want yeah <laughs> so perhaps picking that thread up comparative sort of things that we got from reading the two books is kind of a closing reflection for this second half because i think we've covered a lot of the interior of uh the elusive shift yeah i mean I think the thesis of the elusive shift has been covered multiple times and resonates throughout the book quite easily. Mm. So those threads are <coughs> not that they're redundant, not that they're redundant by any means, but it's more like they're because they're quite well reinforced. I don't want to be redundant by reinforcing the reinforcement. I think we've made no secret. At least I've made no secret of it, which is that I very much preferred this book to the last one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's be real. Largely because I like how I liked how things operated in praxis. And to be fair to William White's book, he did give examples. It's just that for for uh, Peterson's, I don't feel there's as much bias. Okay, you, you know what? Let's just be fair. It's a better written book. That's what it is. Yeah, I think on the level of prose, this book is is uh, more pleasurable to read. It's a better written book. I mean, yeah. period. 
You know, like, it's... Oh, God. I'm going to get into so much trouble for this. I know I am. <laughs> I know. I know. I think another, at least for me, another, like, foundational difference between the books, and this is neither here nor there, um, but I think it it's telling that the one book, uh, Dr. White, is, I believe, a sociologist, and Peterson is, I believe, a historian. And the two books are really colored by those different perspectives. And as a person who has most of an anthropology degree and was in a department with a lot of sociologists, like, I get it. <laughs> I you know what I mean? I don't. Like, I, don't I get, get it. it. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it, okay? Like, as someone who literally grew up with, 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 like, statisticians, surveyists, anthropologists, no. No. It, especially with anthropology. Like, he went native. Like, mm. you're not yeah. supposed to do that. You're, yeah, I think, you know, I'm glad you're the one that broached using that term. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I'm coding actual, like, he no, became, no, I, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, I, to, I know what you mean, but, right? Like, I, I think, you know, to do an inversion of my usual thing, I think he did good participant observer sociology other than he didn't frame it as that. And in a lot of ways, I think... It was easier to do a podcast about his book because it was bad. You know, I mean, let's just say it. It's easy. It's like, again, the whole reason why the podcast exists is because one day one of us saw this book and went, holy heck, what is this? (laughs) Why? And I think it. I, I think, think it, it really might... suffered the it, the first book. Yeah, I, the, which would, I can't remember the name of it to save my life. It's like the most academic press the, title ever. The Forge of the Skin of Hephaestus. No, <laughs> that, was what, that was what he's going to name. Oh my god, Forging the Forge. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um, but he it doesn't have a strong thesis. It has a really broad, unspoken thesis, and it doesn't really, you know what I mean. Whereas Elusive Shift, I like I know exactly what the thesis is. The thesis is there's these two schools that cropped up in the seventies around role-playing games and they went back and forth and all these people said all these different kinds of things about it. And now here's where we're at. You know what I mean? Coming out of that, like that's, that's sort of the, the, the argumentation structure of that book. And I don't feel like the forge book had a strong angle. Well, I think that's the thing where I'm going to, again, be, just my most recalcitrant self because you know i feel like i normally um take the low road i'll take a high one for once and uh walk a mile in the shoes of someone who um has a better moral calculus than i do or feels whatever (laughs) i don't know fuck it um anyway right like here's the thing i think right we could talk really productively about the Elijahs in what was, or in what we see as Elijahs, however you want to phrase it, right? Like, I assume that a, any speaker or hypothetical interlocutor disagrees with me, and that's because I worked in philosophy for years, which is basically a breeding ground for paranoia. But, right, like, to some degree, the, the way that 
it was presented, the way that it put together its sources, the way that it was so close to something, and also that thing is so close in time to all of us, we could reach out and see it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, in a way that I can never reach out and see the original moments of D&D, right? It's a creation myth for me, right? Like, I was aware of D&D before I played D&D. I was aware of the idea you could have imaginary games before then. And even as a small child, before I'd rolled dice, right, I was aware that there was something called D&D that an advanced sort of nerd does in an era where I don't think of myself as old, but I'm also not young, right? Like, in a lot of ways, right, there were no streaming services. I watched things on VHS. I was an early-ish adopter of DVD and realized kind of the percentage of things that just died off in the media archive in that transition, and in a lot of ways, the thing about the Forge is it allows us to look at something with far more warts because there's far more closeness to it. There's more for me to talk about as a theorist because there's more where I can draw it out and look at it. Yeah. You know? And as a role-playing thing, the elusive shift is more interesting to me, right? Like, in a way, I can go through it and look at what is this shift? What are these stakes? What are these arguments that happened before I was born? And I don't need someone to win, right? Like, the, the stakes are over. There is nothing to it. The Forge is huge, right? Like, and also not, right? In a weird way, it has a Pyrrhic victory. And it is forever remembered, and yet the things it's remembered for are odd and counterintuitive. Like it's Ron Edwards, not the games that came out of it. It's Ron's theory. It's not the discussions it spawned. And I get a book trying to bridge that. And yet it simultaneously shows how much that was a point in time. So there's Fiona at her most mystical weed ant. Um, let me just actually, you know, conclude that with a bit of, you know, <laughs> and just be like, look, but I think there's something there. I think there's something vital about talking about these recent things, because I think that it's worth taking seriously. And I think the thing that makes it hardest to be in any way a critic is that taking things seriously involves talking about them as imperfect. Yeah. And I think that's what frustrates me most about um, the forge book, it, it's, it's like, this is, and, and I'm a person who has talked extensively and publicly about the forge to my own personal and emotional detriment. And to, to see like that, that book sort of not even have the nerve to just b say, Hey, I'm going to defend this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm going to present this thing. And I'm going to make the argument that all of the bad stuff is either good or fine or excusable, right? Or even I'm just going to like take it as it is and try and find something worthwhile in it. Like those are that, – that's, that's great. And I think that's work that needs to be done just as much as the work that I like to do, which is finding things to hate about The Forge. Um, but I think the book is so interesting or is so interested – in not in, in just absolutely committing in like a really surreptitious way to not not defending the forge but to excusing it you know what i, I don't know if that really reads but no that 
that reads, but Bahar should say something that before reads. I rant again. No, 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 no. I was like wonderfully listening to this. I mean, yeah. I mean, Jared, what, what have you not have? What have you said that I have not really disagreed? With? I've not, I've not disagreed <laughs> with you. I'm like, it's just an unfortunately, Jared. You say it. You said it louder than I ever did, and that is why you have more of a target on your back than me. <laughs> I think it's also easier to be mean to Jared. I set myself up for it. Like, I'm not going to pretend. Like, this is, I, I play a role, or I did when I had a Twitter. I you get know, it. None of our I'm not mad about it. None of our tweets are available for the average person. I mean, it's either they're protected <laughs> or they don't exist. And that's how I prefer it. Yeah, I mean, because I think even that shift away, right, or the post G plus, right, I'm worried there's going to be a book about G plus that's the same way that the Forging the Forge book was, where it, in trying to say that the worst parts were just accidents or a product of their time and not decisions, and trying to say that everything had to happen the way it did, you know, mm -hmm. in a Panglossian sense for... Yeah, I have a classical education. Let me drop a Voltaire reference in there where, yeah, Pangloss is, you know, the parody philosopher in Candide. Um, explaining the joke makes it funnier. <laughs> but, um, right, like, there is this Panglossian sense to it where it says, like, sure, Ron talked a lot, but let me pull some numbers to say that Ron was given some real good advice when he talked, but also it was necessary that there be a cult of personality because of this implicit Marxist comparison, which I don't know, also creates that other fusion of you know, because I just like setting myself on fire in public and seeing what people say about it. Um, right, the idea that games have an inherently political thing when they really don't right the creator's politics are not present in a game they're present in the material its reception in the way that people interact with it in the ideas that it promotes but also the author is fucking dead in many cases literally gary gygax has been dead for the entire life of some people currently playing 5e he died when i was in college i remember it i was really sad legitimately i thought that the review from the one person in, I forget what national fucking tabloid, where they called it a genocide simulator and wrote a bunch of 4G stuff, um, was my exact example of, sure, I have problems with shit Gary Gygax said. I think he had some regrettable thoughts about women. Um, I'm also pretty sure he was a Midwestern engineer who was not very young and never claimed to be hip. An accountant, I, I think. Yeah. I, I don't think that he also, if the game had been successful with young women, I think the biggest concern for him would be how to sell it to people that he wanted to sell something to, right? Like, in a weird way, he knew what his audience was and who he wanted it to be. Yeah, I think I think ultimately it's one of those things where, especially talking about authorship stuff, it's like there's the Forge is doing, the Forge did I need to speak in the past tense because the Forge is technically no longer. The Forge did something very, something that I find really interesting and really um, kind of, I don't want to use the word evil here, but kind of suspect when it, when it comes to positioning the author and the text and the player, right? And this, this is all I ever talk about with the Forge. And it was just really disappointing to see not, not only like that book, 
not deal with that at all, not see it, but also like kind of go out of its way to lampshade it. And I think that's to elusive shifts credit that I think it actually, now we could, we could talk about whether it fully succeeds at this or not, but I think it attempts to like be really upfront about that particular issue. It's like these people are talking about these things in this way. It proposes this sort of ideological and ontological uh, arrangement. And that is what it is. It may be, stop short of making value judgments about that. But that's sort of, I, I think that's what you get with a history text to some degree. Um, well, but yeah, like, I, I think the elusive shift at least mm, well, steps up to that plate. Okay, I think the elusive shift, let's be clear, it is not a, it is not a book that does not have its own agenda, right? Unsurprisingly, yes. Peterson's uh, next all books book... books have agendas. Yeah, but I mean to say like, it doesn't, smack of it i mean all books have an agenda it's just that this this one doesn't smack of it it makes an effort through its prose not to be as castigating of itself <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. the thing is i think that um i think white's book was basically an indictment of of the forge as as he tried to defend it because it was the same kind of problematic communication and selectivity and choosing and cherry picking of one's arguments that yeah. made it feel so gross, right? Whereas if you look at, say, Peterson's book, one can just as easily say, why didn't he use all these other X uh, examples to, you know, and of course, that's where the bias comes in. But I think the difference is, is that there is a greater freedom to disagree with Peterson than there is with White. Because white mm. has a more absolutist use of language and was filled with apologia, right? It was just basically like apology after apology. And that was never the case. You know, that wasn't the actual criticism. Whereas Peterson will go, well, here's some criticisms. Agree or disagree if you want to. Well, yeah, That's I mean, how I, I felt I, about it. I do have this sort of thing of, right, like I would love, like, right, in a weird way, if, um, if, if uh, the Forge book by Dr. White was, you know, more of a Romana Clef, right? I think I pronounced that right. I want to pretend that I'm very smart. Don't worry. Um, but right, if it had the sort of confessional epistolary look at like, hey, you know, what was the Forge, right? Like if it looked at it the way that for fuck's sake, Pornhub looks at its own fucking statistics and has <laughs> like its thing of like, you know, hey, how many people logged on after national tragedy and what did they search for? You know, they're, they're not quite at that level, I think, ever. But right, like there was the kind of like what states did porn viewership go up in at what point during election returns? <laughs> you know, it's fascinating yeah, yeah. data. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's like look there's a degree to which you could pull things like this right like who posted a lot who posted consistently over time whose posts were very instrumental to things happening right like there's a whole archive and the only thing that like it wants to describe is the surface because it wants to say that everything worked right and in many ways though that's a confession right augustine's confessions contain elisions about the truth of augustine's life that you can use to talk about it yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it, it, uh, like a central problem with that book is it's trying to make 
a qualitative argument with quantitative data, but that's like another issue. Yeah, I think that's where we're at, right? Like when you get down to it, and this is not to be, I guess it's like the, the end fold, ending summary of these last two books, like our, our reflections on the ongoing projects across two seasons. It's, yeah, we've been looking at stuff and from a very, uh, we've been looking at very academic things, honestly. Mm. I mean, both like Pelgrin, Pelgrave, Macmillan, MIT. I mean, these are still like, these are, these are academic uh, suppliers ultimately so i think this is a good time for us do we announce our next our next read do yeah we, we're do gonna we? go to primary sources oh my gosh Fiona, are we ready to this are we ready to actually I'm so excited for the fact that i have a demon of inspiration ah uh, okay wait so do we who says it who wants to say it <laughs> i feel like jared should say it um, because I feel like Jared's descriptions of things always have a certain certain ineffable <laughs> quality. Well, everyone, I hope you're excited because we, for our next, I, we're probably going to do multiple episodes on this, right? Um, at least at least one. At least one. We might do two. Like that's where my head's at. Hours long. I still yeah. We'll think, see what happens. I still think someone should pay us for this, but you know what? <laughs> not at the rates of our Christmas episode. Remember when I gave myself our gave gave us rates? Oh yeah. Uh, we're not doing my rates. We, no we're all millionaires now. <laughs> um, so we are going to take a a both critical and a kind look at critical role specifically the episode where they did a one shot of Monster Hearts and personally. I am incredibly stoked about it. Personally, I'm incredibly nervous about it. <laughs> Mahar is very nervous. I can uh, confirm uh, that. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's like, never have I ever been more grateful to have been clinically diagnosed, knowing <laughs> that if and when Twitter reacts to this in the way that they potentially can react to it, I can be properly and legally medicated. <laughs> Mahar seems to think that we're going to be extraordinarily unkind to this episode, but I think, and we were just having this discussion, I think it's like, I don't know what there is to be unkind about. Like, I'm sure it's going to be a perfectly, like, entertaining and, and well done radio play. That's not what I'm saying. And That's it's going to intersect with role playing games in some kind of way that'll be interesting in some way. And we'll talk about that. No. I don't feel like we're going to, I don't feel no. like we're going to say it's, it's boring no. and bad to watch. No, 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 no. I think what, regardless of what we say, someone's just going to disagree. <laughs> and then... <laughs> gonna happen i think i could i could be the most saccharine person i could drip every single word in you know soft cotton and loving treacle and people will still be like how dare you that's what i think we're gonna we're gonna use so many hashtags and we're gonna tag matt mercer it's gonna be great yeah if if Matt Mercer would ever like to be a guest on this podcast, I feel like that would be the weirdest conversation. Or even just a retweet. No how to talk with him. Send us a retweet, Mr. Mercer. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mercer, you don't have to do that. You don't have to. In fact... No, it would be a kindness. I would rather you did not. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would rather you didn't. Um, yes. Yes, that's that's my statement. Um, 
But yet, we will do it anyway because it's for the good of mankind. Bravery. Courage. Trying to be kind. But also, I'm, I watched my first episode of Critical Role to watch it already. And you know what? Like, I get why people like it. I'm excited to talk about why people like it. I mean, it's not bad. Let me put that out there right now. It's not bad. But like anything subjected to an academic lens, it will look bad. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it, but I am certain that I'm going to have a bad time watching it. But that's like, that's on me. I don't like fun things. Jared, I don't like fun things. I don't. Oh my God. (laughs) Just just imagine Jared making sense of sex moves. (laughs) I've played Monster Hearts. Thank you very much. Jared, okay. still. What it, You're what the maiden for play? a reason. <laughs> Jared, what class did you play? Oh, well, I, I GM'd Monster Hearts, I should say. Oh, I was about to say, like, I'm just trying to imagine. I don't want good. to imagine. <laughs> just... I did very badly. <laughs> have, have, you like, ever seen, have you ever seen the galaxy brain gif where it, like, zooms in and then it's another galaxy brain and then it zooms in and, you know, it's like a fractal pattern? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like that's just me trying to imagine Jared playing Monster Hearts. <laughs> yeah, I did a bad job, and it went poorly. I mean, we we all had a good time. It was fine, but we we did stop. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm just so nervous about this one. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm like, I'm I'm honestly nervous about this one. I'm excited. It's a good kind of nervous. <laughs> I mean. I'm excited to talk about the rules of the game. I'm excited to talk about how the rules were played in the format and the format that they were played in. And compare um, and contrast. I'm excited, I'm excited to talk to about the rules. Horse girls. I am excited about the fact that um, you can actually take some really fun out of context screen grabs from it, which I would like to use as a header, but I don't know if that counts as fair use. I don't think it does. Too bad. But still, still, oh my god. <laughs> I can, oh, I'm so nervous. Ah! On that note. Everyone should follow us on Twitter. Yes, yes, if you listen to us, it's at Kind Trying, where we are not that active, but when we are, we interact with you in as best we can, even with bad multilingual French. And you can tweet at us. We're not Matt Mercer. Like yes. we're we're just small people we'll pay with attention. a Twitter account. We'll pay attention. Yeah, we we're here for you. Yes, I mean because there's so many people who don't want us to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, we're we have created the ultimate in social media in that we have a social media account where just no one wants to ask us questions. The show does what they want. I can't imagine any I can't imagine sharing this without anyone else with anyone else. We, sh- we should really cultivate some parasociality. God damn it, no. I literally told you earlier today I think that makes you less of a person. Here's a challenge for all person. our Twitter followers. If you think I'm handsome, tweet it. Kind trying. Um but Jared, what if they say no? If you don't think I'm handsome, don't tweet at me. 